Hi, everyone. This is Kelsey, and this is our second episode of Four of a Kind podcast. Today, we are going to explore the first step in starting a business, and that is the establishment of a mission statement. And I think today we're excited to do that because we have our own story to share with you since this is something we started out with for the podcast. So before we dive into that, I'll just let everyone else say hi. Hey, guys, it's Grace. Hi, everyone. It's Lauren. And this is Michelle. So thanks so much for returning for our second episode. And um, I'm just going to get right to it. Um, So guys, let's just be real. It took us a really long time to get to this stage, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. I think we should tell our listeners a little bit about how and why that was. Grace. um, Sure. So we had all sorts of ideas of what we wanted to do. And in our first episode, we kind of laughed about how our bagatelle brunch was sort of the genesis of this podcast. But what we didn't tell everyone was that brunch actually happened over the summer. I mean, it's already February and we're only on our second episode. Well, if you count our intro one, right? Yeah, and I remember we had this great brunch. And as I recall, it was really easy for us to come up with a problem that we wanted to solve. Um, so identifying the problem wasn't the issue. Yeah, we talked about it in depth over a couple of hours. We had a lot of <laughs> ideas, a lot of things that were being thrown out. And so as entrepreneurs and kind of having that little entrepreneurial spirit, we're like, oh, we could be, and we saw problems and gaps everywhere. So it was just kind of seeing, you know, where we should focus and kind of narrow the scope. Yeah, and one of the terms that I realized that we, Um, use quite frequently is the word entrepreneur. And so just to level set with our listeners, um, the definition that we will use pretty consistently is borrowed from businessdailynews.com. And they define it as a person who identifies a need and starts a business to fill that void. Uh, But Lauren, sorry for interrupting. Do you want to talk about that void that we had identified? Yeah, I think a lot of us have, like I said, that entrepreneurial spirit. We have like that creative side that maybe in our daily jobs, we don't get to always pull to total fruition. We took a class actually that there was a lot of discussion on why people start businesses and kind of what fulfillment they get out of having that creative outlet. And some of that was how to salary. You know, a lot of people have, there's a risk in how much they're going to get paid. But on average, the stats actually show between entrepreneurs and people that are working in traditional corporate jobs, the salaries are pretty much the same, except for a couple of pops where there's a whole lot of huge small businesses that just grow like, wow, there's a couple of years where there are huge economic downturns. And so that goes the opposite way. We also talked about like work life, that kind of balance. And a lot of people see that, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're probably focusing 120% of your time. You have no free free time to focus on anything else because it's your business, it's your baby. And kind of with a corporate job, you can have that on and off. But the stats show, again, that work-life satisfaction is actually slightly higher with entrepreneurship. And then with your overall job satisfaction, entrepreneurship just knocks it out of the park because you actually get to do kind of what you feel emotionally driven to do. I think a lot of people, um, 
they probably don't feel the same way about that corporate structure. It's not, even if they're engaged, they're not as engaged as their own project. So I think there are a lot of surprising things that we talked about. And one of them was also, you know, you think of entrepreneurs as being so risky, but in reality, that wasn't really shown in, in the data either. It was kind of that there were more calculated risk takers. You know, Adam Grant, I just read his book, Originals. And I don't know if anybody else has read that, but we'll listen to it. No, but I should. Super long commute, yeah, so it's I like the book. ordering that on Amazon <laughs> right now. It's a, it is a really good book, because eh? Adam goes into a lot of different studies that he's done with, you know, kind of debunking myths about what you think original people that have, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world, but I kind of just like done amazing things and kind of looked at their background and risk in particular was one of the places that I thought was really interesting because the entrepreneurs that were super successful were not the ones that were just throwing all of their savings into their companies. They were the people that were like, okay, here's my goal for my short term six months and here's how I'm going to slowly back off from the job that I'm currently doing. And it was just so much more planned out and calculated. And they were the ones that were more successful in the long run. So it it sounds like you know, having a passion for this problem or this idea that has been identified is probably part of the reason why people are willing to trade off risk for security. Um, you mentioned risk a couple of times and all very interesting statistics, Lauren. What are the risks that we're taking? I think part of the whole purpose we've said of this podcast is we wanted to try something new or different or stretch ourselves. So now it almost feels like it feels less risky now than in the beginning, to me at least. I think I'm just excited to try it. The podcast is interesting because compared to maybe a a formal business, we're not investing a ton of money. So from a financial perspective, I would say not a lot of risk. Um, What are you talking about? These mics are like $300. Okay, that is fair. A smaller (laughs) financial risk. Um, I don't know what the resale market for these is like. (laughs) Oh, yeah, ticket. Sorry. (laughs) But I think there is a little bit of risk. Well, from a podcast perspective is we're going to put this out on a platform and people can listen to it. And probably our friends, at least because we'll make them too in the beginning, but maybe people we don't know and they're going to listen and they're going to judge us or maybe they love it. But I think that's that's a risk. You kind of have to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And that's you may be similar to some of the other things with entrepreneur. You you have to put your idea out there and like you can't mm-hmm. totally control that response. I mean, obviously, yeah. the idea is to set yourself up. Yeah, a little just, bit of our perfectionist mentality. We we just want to analyze to the very death of something, and we're like, okay, is this, until this is perfect, we can't, you know, try <laughs> it. And I think that's the thing that we, the like huge hill we've had to get over. Yeah, and I promise it won't be perfect. Like it's not going to be perfect today. This episode <laughs> probably our 100th episode won't be perfect either. But I guess that's not really the point. So but I think kind of, part of it is also I, the I fact know. that we're having fun with it, right? And so long as it's still fun and exciting. That's I think that's part of what drives an entrepreneurial spirit. And that's kind of why it's important to have a, a mission statement that you want to stand by. That That's why it was so important for us to craft that mission statement. It just took us a long time to put it together so that it's succinct. I kind of want to pivot a little bit now um, past our own experience and talk about the experience of other 
entrepreneurs and how they went through this process. Grace, um, through your experience, you also had the opportunity to preview a lot of those startups um, who were in their seed funding stage. They probably already established what they wanted their mission statement to be, and maybe it changed along the way. But did you meet anyone who found it super easy to nail down their mission and narrow their scope? I'd say it's a mix, but there were more people, or at least in terms of the founders I've met so far, would say that they probably didn't nail it down or narrow down the scope almost immediately. Talking to all these startup founders, and we'll have a few of them on the show as guest speakers, by the way, they faced the same struggles we did when they were starting up, but they spoke a lot about how important it is for them to have a clear vision, because it's the foundation of everything. It's basically the basis of future decisions they have to make. So it's not just coming up with this brilliant idea. You have to have a clear vision, a viable vision, and from there, really deciding on a strategy that you believe will help you uh, get there. What were the, some of the things that you saw in terms of, you have to say no to some things, right, to narrow down. So when we were even talking about this podcast, it was, you know, first we had like a long paragraph mission statement that we realized was too long and we were trying to say too much almost. Yeah. Even if you have this great idea, like how did you see any of these companies that you worked with have to, okay, we, maybe we wish that our business could tackle all these different people and do all these things, but really we're going to have to start with one. Yeah. So they spoke a lot about how difficult it is to narrow down the scope just because you want to do so many things, right? There are usually several ways you can solve a problem, multiple channels you can use to reach your customers and many variations of products and services you can provide. But you can't and really shouldn't be doing it all, especially if you're just starting out. Sometimes there's this notion that you should do more, that more is better because then you feel like you're covered. But there's a lot of uncertainty in startup companies to begin with. So every time you expand your scope, then you're really just adding another variable that can contribute to that uncertainty especially that you probably don't have enough time in your hands to to manage more things. And that's why investors too want their portfolio company founders to be very hyper-focused and have a clear vision of where they're taking their company to. I think narrowing down the scope as a solo entrepreneur is hard, but it can even get trickier when there are multiple founders involved. All of a sudden you have two, or in our case, for individuals with varying thoughts, not necessarily always opposite ideas, just, you know, different. And then there's just that struggle that struggle to find the one or two things that you think are the most important to focus on. So are there specific industries that you've seen have been a bit more challenging and narrowed down the scope versus other industries that it's always been like really obvious for like direct consumers, but for other industry classes or for other types of companies? I don't think it matters. I mean, I personally don't think one industry is easier than another, generally speaking. I think it just depends on where or what you started with or how broad your initial scope is. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I guess in my head, I feel like direct-to-consumer has been one of those industry classes that has transformed um, substantially most recently and a lot of the brands who have 
come out and been successful. Warby Parker, for one example, and all those shoes that I see that are advertised on Instagram. And I always want to click on it because I'm like, oh, those shoes look really cool. Um, and the toothbrush guys and the razor guys. You're talking work- about the little shopping bags on Instagram? I didn't realize what they were initially. That's exactly it. But there's a um, Wharton marketing professor named Bell who defined millennialization and tied it to this direct consumer model that's that's new. And essentially 20 to 30 something year olds who are digital natives. So all of us basically here who are, who are speaking today, we're not tied to big mall brands. Instead, these consumers, as well as the founders of these direct-to-consumer founders, they're drawn to digital platforms like Instagram, experiential marketing, and brands of lifestyles. And it seems that they've had a pretty easy way to establish what their mission statement's going to be or what their strategy for their company is going to be. not positive that I understand why it would be easier for founders that are direct-to-consumer. Like, is it because there's a lot of other people that have, are doing it or like I why why, why do you think that is that's a great question and I was trying to figure that out too but I want to sell Warby Parker I want to sell glasses or sunglasses eyewear direct to the consumer to cut out the middleman so that it's more affordable and still like really great looking right and I feel like a lot of those companies are able to say the same thing it's it's a model on efficiency yeah. Um, and it's almost like insert your product. Because the thing that's interesting, though, is if I mean, for example, if you go back and read the mission statement that we came up with, it's like in hindsight, it seems like pretty straightforward. Right. But we it took us a long time to get there. But when we got there, it was like, oh, OK, yeah, this is really straightforward and mm-hmm. not complicated. In retrospect, sounds easier than the process really was. So, I mean, and I don't know for Warby Parker, but I'd be curious, too, what their mission statement is. Well, I guess maybe let's bring them on the show at a future podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Ask them ourselves. Just for, I just Googled, Warby Parker mission statement. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty objective to offer designer eyewear at a revolutionary price while leading the way for socially conscious businesses. They have the socially conscious piece in there, too, which is kind of the millennialization thrown in there as well. Now I can see what you're saying, though, Michelle, about if that's the trend in the consumer space, then potentially our new companies entering that space just going to model themselves all the way down to a mission statement. The founders are Wharton grads, right? So like I said earlier, maybe we should bring them on and <laughs> ask that question. We'll add that to the yeah, list think- of things that we can do in the future. Startup companies need to figure out what their mission statement is, but large corporations, even though they've been around for a long time or more established companies, they typically set out with a mission statement and maybe it evolves over time. Lauren, did you want to talk a little bit about how uh, larger corporations interact with their mission statement? In my role, I, I support um, people in the C-suite that basically it's, we've kind of so far been talking talked about how you articulate your vision and what you want to go with the mission of the company. As, and you're kind of starting that from scratch. Once you narrow it enough, which we've already found and talked about is pretty challenging itself. Once you figure out exactly what you want to do, you're growing that thing and you're hiring the people that you think support the same values and support that same mission statement. But like when you're a new uh, individual to the C-suite of a company that yes, they already have a vision, but 
markets change as you actually have to pivot into different parts of, I mean, macroeconomics happens. So you have to change your vision at some point and change kind of where you're taking your strategy of the company. So how do you actually define that for hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people, very distributed workforce across the globe? How do you like make them understand it when you don't see these people all the time? You have to make sure that it's a very distributed messaging. How, how do you how do you convince people that this is where you want the company of the, uh, to go in the future? How do you how do you come up with something like that? And then how do you message it? I think you already have in a very like complex corporate structure. You have to move. A, it's like moving a huge ship, which is extraordinarily difficult and super slow. So you have to make sure you're constantly repeating exactly what you want and repeating it in a variety of different ways. And especially, I, I think there's a stat that basically says adults need to hear the same thing like at least four times before it actually starts sinking in. And that's totally true in a corporate sense because we mentioned before, it's not necessarily like people are there are totally 100% engaged. So every time they hear a senior leader saying something, they're not taking it and seeing themselves in that immediately. They have to hear it and they have to constantly understand, which means like your leadership skills need to be on point. You have to really understand what's going on in your organization. You have to understand if people are taking changes that you're making to heart. Are you seeing those changes flow through all the processes in your organization? All the times that's really hard to measure and understand. I mean, that's a huge challenge for um, executives. I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not personally executive, so I don't have to live through it. I just get to see of how a workforce can respond or not respond. I think too, starting with the mission and then not only do you have to decide on this mission statement, but then how do you make sure that everything you're doing is actually reflecting that? Especially when you get big, having one sentence up on a board seems I don't know, almost is like strong enough to support the weight of everything you're doing up on top of it. If you're, if you envision that mission statement as like the foundation and you're building up. And I think is establishing some sort of direction. We, I don't know how explicit it needs to be. You read the Warby Parker one, which seems like fairly focused. Some other mission statements might be broader to allow for flexibility, but and allow for more as like almost aspirational. I think it's just interesting when it comes down to actually running everything. And we talked about this too with, even with the podcast is once we get started, what if we want to do this, this, or this, or how do we make it broad enough that there's optionality in the future, but also focused enough that we feel like we're pointing in the same direction. Yeah, that's a good point because I I think in the past two and a half years, we've seen a lot of mission statements throughout the course of um, school. And while we can opine on the benefits of having a short yet general mission statement versus a very long and specific one, Lauren's point earlier about being able to convey this message to the masses if you're part of a larger organization, at what point is the mission statement the summary of the the strategy? And at what point does the strategy drive the mission statement, which comes first? Is it chicken or egg? Or do they come Mm -hmm. together um, in parallel? Because the strategy allows for the mission statement to be true. And the mission statement um, helps people see that vision, which is how the execution of that strategy is going to get you to that vision, right? So it feels kind of intertwined at the same time. Yeah, I think that's why we struggled so hard with it to begin with, because we're like, we need to see what it looks like and and start recording so we can figure out exactly what we want it to end up being and see how it needs to shift as we go versus also we want to make sure that we're focused enough when we start so we're not 
all over the place. That's why it took us from yeah. August to January. That That's why. <laughs> and then to throw M&A into the mix of, you know, the range of between startups through established companies, that's yet another dynamic that corporations have to have to deal with. And thankfully, we don't have to deal with that because we're not acquiring or divesting anything at this point. But did anyone want to kind of opine on that? I mean, we might be acquiring and divesting episode topics, but this is a really interesting topic, especially as someone with experience in a company where this happens quite frequently. But I think there's M&A as a tool to align the company in a particular direction. So as you add pieces or subtract pieces, how far does that move you from whatever the starting point is, if the starting point is your original mission statement? Or you get to a point where maybe not everything is driving in the same direction and you need to divest. I mean, I went through this because I worked at a very small company a couple years back and they were acquired by a larger, not not large company, but larger than our 50 people. And I talked to a couple of the executives that were a part of the acquisition. They had been through this kind of deal previously in previous companies that they had. And they were like, there's a three-year timeline that basically this happens, you know, you purchase the company. The first year, kind of everything's kind of stays the same. The strategy is still the same. The mission's still the same. And then slowly the second year, there's the transformative where a larger company starts to infiltrate and kind of push down the processes and kind of what they want their vision to be. It's probably different than the kind of agile way the smaller company could work before. And then third year, that norm- normalization happens where the people that really liked the small company atmosphere can't deal with bigger structure, corporate vision, don't agree with it, don't understand it, start to leave. And then it becomes one company. So it really takes a kind of significant timeline. I mean, that's three years for two mm-hmm. established companies are, are, are dealing with in the similar in a similar industry. So you can only imagine how that happens on big, complex, like we're buying a totally different type of company going in into a totally different direction, which, you know, like the huge conglomerates of the world do pretty frequently. I think another way to think about it is as you grow, you feel further away maybe from the mission. If you talk to the mm-hmm. four of us about this podcast, we're going to feel so close to that, that that's sort of in the back of our mind all the time. But if you brought in, I don't know, technical staff, since we clearly need some help um, you know, how they're going to be one step to remove from that. And then obviously as the organization grows, you get further. And But I wonder if there's a point with being further away, if, I don't know what I'm saying here, but no, I, 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 get I get what it. you're saying. Um, as someone who works for an organization that employs over 10,000 people all over the world, look, I'm not the person who founded my company, but I have a strong reason to believe the mission statement that the company I work for has. But it's also my job that I have to embody this mission statement and share it with the people who work on my team so that they feel closer to the strategy so that they feel closer to the vision and in their day to day, even though they're not thinking about the mission statement, they feel this might sound a little bit cheesy, but they'll feel energized by the fact that their piece of what they're doing moves the company forward towards that vision, towards the the strategy that was established by someone who's like 10,000 levels above us. Right. And I think that's what you were trying to get at. Agreed. Yeah. Well said. 
So we covered a lot of ground today, which if I were to summarize, before you can even define your strategy, you need to figure out your your mission, your mission statement. And that actually serves as the blueprint or the framework for the company or an organization if it's a nonprofit organization or a podcast. And this strategy needs to be tied back and consistent with the mission, which I think we kind of reiterated not really on purpose, but it kind of came up naturally in all the various examples that we went through earlier today. So we'll probably also have an appendix or an extended version of this episode so that we can talk a little bit more about what our visions are. But I just wanted to end it there. I'm blabbering. (laughs) You all... By you all, I mean the listeners here (laughs) have any questions, comments, or suggestions, uh, please send us an email. And our email address is forvakindpodcast, and that's for spelled out F-O-U-R, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram. Tag us in a post. It's at forvakindpodcast, and again, for spelled out F-O-U-R. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Four of a Kind Podcast. Have a great week. Bye.